0: everyone, welcome to Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy. Hey. Hello. Today on the show we are going to talk about the House of Hammer documentary and Army Hammer and his family.
1: His wonderful family. Yeah, some are wonderful <laughs> because they made this product. That's true. But so first of all, you know, who is Army Hammer? Most people now know if they didn't before. He's an American actor who's been in several movies, TV shows. He's known for the movie The Social Network and Call Me By Your Name. Those are probably its two biggest performances. He's also been um, more recently in the last couple of years. He's been accused of uh, sexual violence and cannibalism by some of the women that he dated of course, he's denied all allegations, and the LAPD closed the case without any, pressing any charges, which is like, poof, talk about privilege. And we're going right. to talk about privilege here. <laughs> this is essentially what this episode is about, is like white, mm-hmm. powerful, rich-ass privilege, oh, okay? Oh, my gosh. And male privilege, right? Like there's something subtle about this whole, right? So he recently, um, I think in the last year has given some interviews where, um, he has admitted to using people for his own pleasure, but by God, if you watch this, you know, this, this guy is a sociopath and he is so incredibly proud of how he's been able to manipulate and fool and use and objectify and coerce. And, you know, he has all the the classic cycle of narcissistic abuse, you know, the love bombing, the devaluation, the discard, rinse and repeat with every single woman. As you watch through the documentary, there are a few women who um, participate in the interviews and they share essentially, it's like a template. Um, And we know that there is a template when when we're dealing with people who are sociopaths or pathological narcissists that they abuse in a very specific way. And if they come out, you know, they're very charming because if they're, if they're not, they they won't be able to do this so many times. Mm -hmm. And the women start to communicate with each other and realize like, wow, this guy has done this and continues to do this to so many women. So the documentary was made because of that, but also primarily because he, uh, his, great-grandfather or great-great-grandfather, Armand Hammer Sr., who was born in 1898. He was a an L.A.-based American petroleum executive entrepreneur and art collector. His story I'm going to talk a little bit about and give some background to how he got there, but I also just want to mention one other person who was really the influence of the documentary, which is Army's aunt, Casey. So Casey is the sister of Michael Hammer, who is Army's father, okay? And so through the series of this documentary, Casey really was the most directly involved, and according to what the media says anyway, that this is just one of several times that she has been very outspoken about the family's deep controversy and the dark secrets of just this wealth and privilege that destroyed so many people, including the women in her family, she being one. And so she tells the story and she really exposes uh, her, her, the more specifically the men of her family and how they were able to destroy so many people. Casey is really, I think, and we'll talk about the documentary in a bit, but I do think that Casey's participation in this documentary for me is what made the documentary really special. And, I, and it made me feel captured by it. I think if it was just a series of facts or whatever, I mean, this guy's an asshole. We know he's an asshole. We know the history of this Hammer family. But I think Casey's, the way that she delivers the information, it's in such a way that you can really see the trauma come through. And she'll, we'll discuss a little bit about her story in a bit. So who is Armand Hammer? Um, he was the son of a doctor. He had made his first million dollars. I'm talking about senior now. I'm not talking about the the great grandfather who passed through his enterprising venture in his father's pharmaceutical company before receiving a medical deg- degree from Columbia University in 1921. He did a lot of his work in the Sov- in Soviet Russia. I believe his um, I believe his father was Russian, but he never spoke Russian, but he ended up giving medical aid to that country's famine, uh, to the famine victims. And he was personally persuaded by Vladimir Lenin to turn his business talents to uh, account there instead. So he started to do all of this business in Russia, which is where a lot of his destruction and a lot of the, the, I think where a lot of the deception and a lot of just the corruption started was over in Russia. So he ends up getting really tired of his hectic business style and he retires in 1956, but he's approached that year by a friend who suggests that he finances two wildcat oil wells. And this is how he then develops the Occidental Petroleum Corporation. And from here, he unexpectedly like strikes oil like the way that we would see in you know some of these shows that it's like no way that this could possibly happen and quickly increases his holdings and becoming the firm's chief executive officer and this is really important information because he becomes this overnight success And his income was like $650 or something. It's like, it's insane. And so you think about the amount of power and wealth and all of that and and how from there, imagine the entitlement. This guy had connections to every, you know, he was invited to the White House. He would go party with the Soviets. He, uh, uh, the royal family. I mean, he could get into whatever he wanted. This man was never told no. We know that he was also, um, you know, he had a, what do most sociopaths do? Well, they cover up all of their stuff by having a family and by having children and looking a certain way. And we learned through the documentary that the pattern of destruction really started with him and, uh, you know, cheating on his wife and abusing his kids. And all of this stuff really starts to get passed down to the next generation, which is Army's father. And sister Casey, and I believe they have one other brother as well. And we find out through, through that, that, and she, Casey actually describes her family to be like the show Succession, like times a thousand. So if you've seen Succession, the, what we know about a narcissistic parent is they will intentionally set up siblings to compete with one another. And that's what he did in the will, and that's what, you know, I think the other brother was set up to really own everything and get everything. So it sets these kids up to really compete with one another. And we find out that obviously he gives the males in his family a lot of money, a lot of privilege. And then we find out through Casey's interview that she was sexually molested by her father. And so I think that her experience as a victim in all of this and having a very different experience as a female in this family, because all of the females in this family were cheated on, abused, neglected, objectified, which was a different experience. Although the males were objectified and used, I guess, for the dad's you know personal needs, they, they at the same time were kind of the golden children. And they came out with their own levels of narcissism. Which I think is
0: a setup too. It
1: totally is a setup. And it's not a good, Thing, no. I mean, if
0: we talk about, I'll just interject for a second. We use that phrase "toxic masculinity" a lot mm-hmm. in our culture right now, and you know, all that is is just is a set of attitudes and a way of behaving that's like stereotypical and and it's what's expected. And so, it's in in his family, there the men were expected to act a certain way, women were expected to act a certain way, but toxic masculinity masculinity or the negative or the shadow masculinity that goes on is is detrimental to men, too. It's not like, you know, we bandy it about in our culture, oh, he's a toxic masculine. But toxic. The really the heart of the idea of toxic masculinity is that it's a set of attitudes and a way of behaving that's indoctrinated into you mm-hmm. in your culture. And in this sense, we're talking about this these people's family of wealth, influence, prestige, narcissism, et cetera. And it has a negative impact on the men 100%. and the women. Yeah. Just because differently. They're just differently. Yeah. And they're just set up because right. he, they're all of those generations of men were expected to act a certain way and mm-hmm. then did. Mm-hmm.
1: That's right. And and I think that um, when we look at the, the children of the offspring of these folks, they all have a different type of trauma. Like Shannon's saying, like the, this golden child or these golden children or these golden sons end up becoming more of the narcissist where the, the women end up becoming much more of the victim. Well, like learned
0: helplessness. The learned and all helplessness. Of, yeah. yeah.
1: Codependency, whatever else they have, they might have in there where, but, as a survival skill, the narcissism is much more effective, and and it feels less—at least it feels less victimy. But it is harmful because we what we know about these personalities is that they just continuously get in their own way. They hurt they they're hurting others, which by then they hurt themselves. So none of it's good. No, none of it's good. Um, it's just that you're in more much more of a power position as a narcissist because we sensationalize it, and you know, hell, what would happen if we could get through? life and and not feel any emotions or empathy you know we could we could do a lot of destruction um, and get our needs met that way without thinking about anybody else and so Casey I I compare her to similarly to what Mary Trump has done with the Trump family which is like hey let me uh, let you in on this little secret and this is actually what's happening and one of the main reasons why Casey did this documentary is because ARMY has been accused of now also becoming a, a predator, different yet similar from his great-grandfather and from his uncles and whoever else fell into that whole intergenerational piece. And he's
0: operating in this society now. That's right. Where we shine a light on this kind of stuff constantly, whereas his forefathers yeah. were operating in a, a much more, uh, were able to get away with it a Oh, they more. were
1: able to hide it and no one was going to ever like, and I think there was a point in the, the documentary where someone had asked why Casey never said anything or reported. She said, who the hell was going to listen to me? Yeah, this, right. man, no way. this man owned the world.
0: We're in the, we're in the world of the Netflix documentaries now. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone will listen to you now, but then right. no way.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. So the way that they, the documentary at least describes Army is he essentially was a sexual sadist, we, he was very obsessive. He would find these women who were uh, easily influenced by his charm, his celebrity, his, you know, he's not a bad looking guy. He comes from power and wealth and all of these things. And what we know about sexual predators and sociopaths and all that is they lead with this really, you know, constant attention. They make their Targets feel very special, very unique, very listened to. They'll ask you a lot about what's important to you because they're really trying to mirror back this idea of what you want. And they're essentially creating a persona for you. And once he was able to do that, then he could infiltrate all of his fantasies that were violent in nature and objectifying and abusive. But he would use um, tactics like shared trauma experiences, right? So he would say things like, oh, this happened to me as well. And he would do this very early on. And the, the women would describe like, I felt very safe with him because I could talk about my traumas. And then he would come back and say, yeah, I totally get that. This helped, you know, this happened to me as well. And that creates an openness in the target to become more vulnerable to feel like, wow, this is a man with empathy and he's been through it and I can trust him. So he would say things to the women like you get me, or is this crazy? Are we moving too fast? I'm just really feeling this with you. And those of us have, who have been through these things, we're all sitting there rolling our eyes going, Oh God, this is straight out of the textbook. My God, they must, they must have a book. They, I swear, because they the
0: love bombing is always the same.
1: It's always the same. It's yeah, the they same They say shit. the
0: same stuff. <laughs> Every story I ever heard, between my own, my friends, my clients, yeah. it's all got the same lines. Then he said this, or then she lines. said that, or then
1: they did the yeah. No, for sure. And yeah. it, I'll, I'll even you know sometimes find humor in that with my clients and be like, you it's like to. it's like it's a template, right? You it, have to. And they're like, yeah, it's terrifying. So I'm gonna move this over to Shannon for a moment because I'm, what I'm about to say, I think she'll have a lot more to say, but one thing that Hammer did and what he was really successful in doing is he lo- he looked for women who didn't understand BDSM culture. Mm-hmm. So they didn't understand that there's certainly rules and safety and all of that. And so he would describe what he was doing as kink, but let's be real, there's a difference, right, Shannon?
0: Yeah, I mean... One of the things that happens in this documentary that I appreciate is that at one point they do have someone on that explains what healthy BDSM is and, and how this was not that, which I appreciated because for a lot of it, I was like, are they ever going to like say how this is not the way it goes? Yeah. And so for those of you who don't know, I'll just uh, backpedal just for a second to say, they talk about BDSM in this, but that's, it's basically like an erotic practice. It's just something that you can have in your, in your sexual life. You can play those kinds of sadomasochistic interpersonal dynamics. You can have them in a full lifestyle. There are people who live 24 seven in that kind of lifestyle. And there are people that use those kinds of role playing practices in their sexual behavior or uh, to spice things up sometimes, or maybe just in their home, but not out in the world. So there's all the ways that, you know, relationships can unfold. The, the issue with this is that army hammer would come off. Like, I just like a little bit of kink, you know, I like to choke you or uh, tie you up or whatever. Now that kind of conversation is a very kind of common conversation that one might have mm-hmm. with someone with a, a partner you're getting to know and you want them to know that what the things you kind of like and you kind of want to say like, do you like these kinds of things too? You kind of want to figure that out, especially if for some reason it's a bottom line for you. Like I've met people that, you know, that's kind of a bottom line. They, they need that in their erotic practice. Unfortunately, beyond that conversation, what would happen with Army, as you'll see in this documentary, is that he would then take what he wanted from these women without their consent. So he would get into relationships with them but then within the relationships he would exact these kinds of things that he wanted to do whether that was biting because he talked about being a cannibal whether or not he really was or not I don't know. I feel like that was for dramatic effect. I'm not sure. Biting. He might have been into bloodletting so maybe that's why he would talk about cannibal mm-hmm. cannibalism choking, tying up and then and it was also stated that he would rape them. So he'd be in relationship these with these women and he would get them into situations where he would tie them up and then he would rape them. So here's the difference in a consensual sadomasochistic activity or a BDSM relationship, whatever you want to call it there is a lot of discussion beforehand and part of that kink can be making contracts yes like part of the kink of it like the fun and i'm saying that in a light way like part of the fun for these folks is the contract and all the negotiation you know we talk about it in horror movies the build-up right it's like The contracts, the negotiation, the discussion of what I will and won't do, the discussion of what the other person will or won't do. All of that is like part of the fun. Mm -hmm. And then you agree to that. And there's a safe word. Often there's a warning safe word before the actual safe word. Like, hey, you're getting close to my limits, whatever. Like there are so many like...
1: Rules and regs. <laughs> well, and he was the only voice in the relationship too. Yeah. They were, ju- I mean, I understand there's a level of submission in BDSM, but outside of those, well, I guess, depending on what the rules are, sometimes it, it's ongoing, but like he was setting this, the precedent of like, this is in, that's not typically at least my understanding of how that works. Like there's a discussion about things. There's a
0: discussion about everything. Yeah. And then the play becomes within the quote unquote scene or right. the day or whatever you're going to there's do, consent. whatever you've agreed on, it's all consensual. It's all consent. And everyone knows that it's actually the submissive or the bottom, as they say, in mm-hmm. some communities that's actually in control of that's everything. right. It, the dominant is exacting things for the that the submissive wants, and the submissive is doing things for the dominant because they believe that the dominant enjoys those things. So it's all based in consensual, good feelings, love, you know, even with humiliation stuff where it might to the outside eye look like, oh my God, <laughs> like I never wanna. That is all stuff that they've talked about. And it's within that scene and there's something called aftercare that happens where they take care of each other. They make sure everyone's okay. They navigate the next scene. Like, Oh, this really wasn't that great for me. This really like all of this. Yeah. See how healthy that sounds. <laughs> like you may not want to do those activities and that's perfectly fine. We all, everybody gets to do their own thing, but like you see how healthy communication wise that
1: sounds. It's healthier. Well, I mean, not I so I much. I don't want to make a, Broad statement here, but BDSM relationships, just like polyamorous relationships, which are not the same, but just for the sake of this conversation, is that there's so much communication around rules and safety and agreements and that in a lot of ways they are safer and more secure than monogamous relationships or relationships without bdsm I think
0: far more like I think this is where you're going with this is there's far more communication yeah. in those kinds of relationships what I have observed yeah in relationships that have this kind of edge to them because of the edge people know like we have to be overly communicate yes. communicative about things yes. whereas in average monogamous one-on-one relationships people just take it for granted that we're entitled to have like good communication in those relationships and they don't work as hard. That is absolutely what I have observed for sure. I mean, you know, it's a blanket statement, but in general, I've observed that a lot.
1: Yes. So we know that this individual was not doing those things. I think uh, going back to Casey for a moment, she had stated that one of her, her, in one of her reasons for attaching to this documentary mm. she this is just a quote she said when all this came out about army i was not shocked you just don't wake up and become this dark controller abuser this behavior it's deep rooted She says in the trailer of House of Hammer. On the outside, we were a perfect family, but magnifies succession a million times. And it was my family. Along with the sit down interview, Casey tapped into her personal archive for the limited series, offering up family photos and footage to the filmmakers. And she said it was the first time that she wasn't just telling her story but also the definitive family history, making sure that no stone was left unturned. And part of the reason that she did that was to really support these victims that are coming forward to let people know like, no, you, you actually do need to listen to them because This goes so much further back. Um, She said, I know my grandfather had a dark side, but I saw my father's dark side firsthand. And I've seen my brother's dark side. It was like a monster unleashed. Now it's army. Every generation of my family has been involved in dark misdeeds. And it just gets worse and worse and worse. can't imagine
0: growing up in a family like that, honestly. No,
1: and she says, she's like, I've let this family control my whole life. And at this point I refuse to be silent. So I I mean that there's the answer into like why she really decided to do this and make it maybe her way of getting some at least emotional closure. I don't know.
0: Yeah. I mean, like kind of like what we were saying earlier is that, you know, use what, use what you have available to you. She happens to have in this world, one, a lot of money, or she was supposed to have a lot of money. She has a lot of clout in that she was in this family so she could get a documentary made in other words. I
1: think she was left actually with very little. No, what I mean
0: is, and I took it back that she had a lot of money. I said she had a lot of prestige and a lot of clout within the family Mm -hmm. because otherwise to pitch this story as an outsider you wouldn't get this movie made. right? So she's pitching this like I want to, you know, she could get this documentary made. Yeah, for sure. So that's privilege right there. Mm -hmm. But the second thing is that we live in this era where these things are getting made constantly i mean obviously we talk about a lot of them on the show so she has this pulpit we have an audience she has a built in audience for this kind of thing i mean we just watched the Murdoch murders it's a right. similar kind of situation
1: absolutely much of the, these families dark secrets coming from this really like this place of wealth and privilege and race and all of this stuff and again all of the the male privilege within these families and then just, they can't help themselves. Inevitably they're going to fuck up royally. Yeah. And, uh, they'll appeal it. You know, it's just like army doesn't have any charges. Alec Murdoch is probably going to appeal his case and get, get less time. I mean, yeah,
0: the amount of privilege is crazy. Cause I was looking at this one article that was talking about like all of the revelations in this documentary And when I was, and there was a bunch of articles like this, but when I was reviewing those kinds of articles, like, okay, what's the takeaway? What's everybody so up in arms about this documentary about? And you look at the list and it's like Julius and Armand Hammer were Soviet union agents. Like that in of itself. It's like the Edward Epstein reveals that Army's great, great, grandfather dr julius hammer after immigrating to the u.s from russia had close ties to the kgb and sent the soviet union various details about u.s policy back in the day Mm -hmm. and then things like armand abused a mistress and forced her to conceal her identity like way back when this is the great grandfather and that's this is so long ago it's 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 crazy it's like Armand got away with major crimes. Like there's this one part where he was found guilty of making illegal contributions to the reelection campaign of Richard Nixon in 1975. And then 14 years later in 1989, George Bush senior would pardon him for the charge. So it's It's like, and, and like a year earlier, the Occidental Petroleum Company was in hot water for improper safety measures. Uh, I think it was following the Piper Alpha explosion that killed 165 people. Yeah. And there were no criminal charges. Seriously. Brought against them. Things like that. So Julian Hammer, I guess, is Armand's father, right? So Michael is. Okay. So yeah. Julian Hammer.
1: He might be the other brother.
0: Yeah, maybe so. Casey Hammer, the daughter of Julian, who is Armand's oh, grandfather. Oh, got it.
1: And yeah, because Armand is... great 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 grandfather yeah so
0: armand is great great julian is great Mm -hmm. (laughs) not none of them are great 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 grandfather they revealed in this documentary that this father this guy uh often acted extremely erratic especially after the mom left him of course because that was probably a stabilizing factor for his behavior. And among his most disgusting action were his famous parties, which usually had 16 or 17... Oh, God, we, f-
1: we forgot about that part. ...year-old
0: girls in attendance. Casey recalls finding a Polaroid photo after one of these cocaine-fueled parties in which a young girl could be seen giving a blowjob while an oh older man God. watched her. That is
1: disgusting. So that's
0: the great-grandfather. Yes. So the great-great-grandfather built an empire, and he was a Soviet spy first and then was obviously... Involved in political criminalization and different things like that. And his company killed people because of their poor safety standards. And then Julian, here we are, is abusing teenage girls widely, drug use, and whatever else was going on. And Julian essentially got away with murder because back in 1955, a friend of Julian's named Bruce had asked him about an outstanding gambling debt. And this sparked an altercation between the two men, as it would, that resulted in Julian shooting Bruce, who died. Mm -hmm. And thanks to his lawyers, likely hired by his father, Armand, he was able to get away with the charges. They were downgraded to manslaughter, and then they were thrown out altogether. Jesus. So there's that. Just so many chances. And then we watch this woman in this documentary, right, who we can say, we have to say allegedly, but during her interview, Casey says that she was sexually abused by Julie and this is Mm -hmm. the same guy. And that would make sense. What we know of these parties, right? Mm -hmm. It just kind of tracks that Mm -hmm. that kind of behavior wouldn't be in the outside the realm of possibility. And she says that, you know, was coming back in memories and of course she's emotional in the documentary about it. And it's, it's hard to watch because that's a hard thing to hear about. And she realized it so late, so much later in life. Mm -hmm. I can only imagine how much she went through Mm -hmm. to get to that spot. So then, so we have Armand, we have Julian and now Michael, right? So Mm -hmm. this is army's dad. Michael hammer looted Armand's home right after the patriarch died. So the great, great grandfather dies. They talk about the will and all kinds of stuff in this movie, but Michael, the father of Army and brother of Casey. So, Casey is Army's uncle. I mean, aunt. aunt sorry. Yeah. Yeah, that's what you were talking mm-hmm. about. Michael, the father of Army and brother of Casey, might not be as outwardly abusive as the other men in the family, but he still seems like a giant piece of work. This article says Casey alleges in the documentary that Armand died in 1990. Michael and his wife drew, they go into this whole thing about how Michael and his wife drew immediately began taking valuables from his father, grandfather's (laughs) house, Mm -hmm. but they ended up inheriting everything is what I remember. Like Casey got like a couple bucks and -and so-and-so got a couple bucks. And, and then, um, Michael and drew got a lot of the money, but they also started just like stealing valuables from the house. Sure. When people die, it's a very interesting thing. Well, but, What makes this worse, according to Casey in the documentary, is that they started doing this while Armand's body was still lying in his bed. Like they hadn't even picked up the body when this was really happening. So now we get to Army, right? So Mm -hmm. this whole documentary, they tell you all about his kinky habits, his non-consensual sex, the way he... At least, at least one of his co-stars, we're guessing more, he bullied and humiliated. Yep. I mean, he talks about like having them, forcing them to hold like degrading signs at the airport and receiving lap dances at strip clubs that were against their consent they didn't want, that were embarrassing. Mm-hmm. And then he also, you know, I think, think he specifically targeted women who had past toxic relationships Mm -hmm. and when he would hear about them, like what Kathy was saying, here's my ex-boyfriend or this or that, or he was so awful. And you know, women tend to do that in the beginning of relationships. Uh We tend to make the mistake. And I think it's a mistake of telling our new partners about the toxicity of our past relationships. Because if you tell that to someone who is not the healthiest of people, they will use that against you. It's really something to be told once you know them, Mm -hmm. once you know someone more intimately and you're in a more solid relationship, then you can tell them about all of your hurts and pains and toxicity from the past and what you subjected yourself to and what you got involved in and how you became a victim of either a small T or a big T, which whatever it is, but what these women were doing and, and maybe many of you have made that mistake is they would tell them right away in the getting to know you process. And then he would use those, to say, "Ah, this is a good mark," right? And then he would hook them. Absolutely, I think that's yeah. part of the worst part of this. Honestly, I, I, it's part of the worst part. Exposing I realize, people's
1: vulnerabilities. Yeah, I realize that
0: non-consensual stuff is yeah. absolutely the worst part of this. But like,
1: no, exploiting ah, people's vulnerabilities emotionally, and like, and using it against them. So awful. Yeah, it's just you know the cautionary tale of don't don't assume that someone is going to. Uh, treat you the way you're treating them uh, or seeing your trauma as something to be, it's like when you talk to therapists, it's a very vulnerable position as a therapist. I feel like deeply humble by the fact that someone would share something so personal and people can easily exploit that. So you just, you do want to be really careful about that because I think it's normal to want to talk about past relationships or be like, Oh, thank God I'm out of that. And it was so terrible. And you meet the wrong person and they're going to, they're going to take that for a ride.
0: It's just part of the boundaries. I think we have to learn as we get older. The part of the boundaries of dating someone new is not to is to have emotional boundaries and to not tell them all the stories of all yeah. the bad things that you're trying to avoid in Give the very beginning. Yeah, just like you know, a over minute. time. Yeah, over time. Build Check them out. Trust. Build be, the trust. Be self protective. <laughs> yep, for sure. Um, so, would you recommend this documentary in general? I, I would. Yeah, I yeah. thought it was pretty good.
1: And And it's not terribly long. No, it's like three, three episodes. It's three episodes. Mm -hmm. And I I think just, you know, again, it's a great way to recognize and give a voice to survivors. So Mm -hmm. absolutely.
0: It was interesting. Thank you so much for listening. This has been an episode of Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone.